While we keep working the basics of the Armour and Richmond cases, we're also delving into other cases from our possible files. In Tulare County, this includes two EAR-style home attacks, two kidnapping rapes, and two homicides. TCSO is involved in all of those investigations, and they all remain unsolved. Additionally, we're coordinating information on an investigation in a 1979 Fountain Valley case. There are also several Sacramento cases on our list. These are all unsolved, and we want to get word out about them. We're hardly the first to wonder if these cases were the work of the EAR, but feel our listeners might be a good source of new thinking about them. These all look a lot more like the Armour and Richmond homicides than known EAR attacks. We're going to try to cover them in order of date of occurrence. In the first case, the victim survived, so we're going to call her Nancy. She was kidnapped at gunpoint on Wednesday, July 27, 1977, at 12.30 p.m. as she returned to her car from the bank and grocery store. Nancy was 20 years old, 5 feet tall, 100 pounds, with long blonde hair and blue eyes. The shopping center was located at Greenback Lane and San Juan Avenues in Citrus Heights. Nancy was a college senior who still lived with her parents a few blocks away from the shopping center, and she was expected home right away. By 2.30, her family began looking for her, and by 5 p.m., they'd called the police. Despite the fact that Nancy was an adult, Sacramento Sheriff's investigators immediately treated the case as possible foul play and put out a bulletin looking for her car. This quick thinking on the part of her family and deputies undoubtedly saved her life. Nancy's car was discovered in Granite Bay, stuck on the side of Cavett Stallman Road, west of Barton, at 1 a.m. July 28th. This area is in Placer County, so the case immediately became multi-jurisdictional. Nancy's car was locked and the keys and her wallet were missing. Inside the car, investigators located her bank book, purse, groceries, and undergarments. Law enforcement quickly organized a large group of searchers, and a volunteer located Nancy in an irrigation ditch culvert under Barton Road at 11.23 a.m. on the 28th. The location was about one-quarter mile northeast of her car. Nancy was naked with her hands tied behind her back, and her muddy blouse and skirt were found nearby. She'd been bludgeoned and had knife wounds on her neck and arms. She'd been in the culvert for about 22 hours. Nancy was rushed to the hospital and survived after several hours of surgery. Within a few days, she was able to tell her story to Detective Carol Daly. Nancy said that a man had forced his way into her car at gunpoint and commanded her to drive away from the shopping center. He gave her turn-by-turn directions, including to make a U-turn at the point where her car was found. The road was narrow, and she got stuck on a ridge on the edge. After determining that the car would not move, her attacker ordered her into the back seat and assaulted her. At some point, while they were at the car, two young men approached to see if they needed help, but the suspect waved them off and they left. Nancy was then walked north up Barton Road at gunpoint. This was between 1.30 and 2 p.m. on a Wednesday in the middle of summer. Several witnesses saw them walking, and at one point, Nancy attempted to break away from the attacker, and the oncoming car had to swerve to avoid hitting her. None of the witnesses realized that Nancy was in trouble, or could give a detailed description of the man. 
Once they reached the ditch area, Nancy's hands were tied and she was assaulted again. The last thing she remembered from the scene was being hit on the head. She had no memory of being stabbed, put in the culvert, or rescued, only awakening in the hospital. The attacker took the car keys and Nancy's wallet. It was unknown how he left the area, and no other witnesses emerged despite widespread media coverage and a large reward for information. Presumably, the suspect was planning to drive Nancy's car back to the Citrus Heights area, but couldn't since it was stuck. Nancy described her kidnapper as a white male, 29 to 35 years, 5'9 to 5'11, with dark brown wavy hair cut above the ears. He was wearing oversized brown plastic glasses, which the victim believed to be fake and used as a disguise. Nancy also described his nose as being large or unusual. He was wearing thin brown leather gloves, jeans, a t-shirt, and a maroon jacket. We've included the composite Nancy created on our Facebook page and website. We don't know if any of the physical evidence in the case still exists. Even if the rape kit was destroyed, there may have been lab work in 1977 to determine the attacker's secretor status, blood type, and or PGM type. A non-secretor with a PGM of 2-1 would match the EAR evidence and point strongly to D'Angelo. It appears that the attack involved kidnapping with robbery, so there was no statute of limitations on the case in 1977. We don't know if Nancy has been contacted since D'Angelo's arrest to make a possible identification. The case took a very unfortunate turn in 1979, and we're not sure what impact it might have on her credibility as a witness. In March of 1979, a nine-year-old girl named Kathy Harlan was kidnapped on her way to the school bus stop a few blocks from her home in the Foothills neighborhood. Law enforcement got a tip that the kidnapper was a man named Robinson, and they brought him in for questioning. He quickly confessed to strangling the girl and leaving her body in a dumpster behind a store. However, several days later, she was found bludgeoned in an irrigation ditch about 15 miles north of her home. Even though Robinson's confession did not match the facts, he was arrested and his photo publicized in connection with the case. Nancy saw his photo and identified Robinson as her attacker. Based on his confession and Nancy's identification, he was charged in both cases. Nancy gave emotional testimony at his preliminary hearing, and he was ordered to stand trial. An investigative reporter from the Sacramento Bee noticed inconsistencies between the crimes and Robinson, including an alibi, the fact that he didn't know how to drive, had a pronounced speech impediment, and that his IQ of 63 made him susceptible to making false confessions under pressure. The reporting caused the prosecutor to take another look at the evidence, and all charges against Robinson were dropped. After that, Nancy's case stopped appearing in the secret witness program, and all public pleas for information seemed to have ended. In the days before DNA, a tainted eyewitness would have been a serious blow to the case. We can't state strongly enough how important the reporter, Paul Avery, was to Robinson's freedom. Some of you might recognize his name from the Zodiac case. He was played by Robert Downey Jr. in the film. We've posted his long-read investigative piece on Robinson's arrest and prosecution. He reviewed every single document in the case, conducted critical witness interviews, and reported the facts. We wish that Oscar Clifton had someone like Avery to examine his case in 1975, or that we could get that kind of assistance now.
There is no question that the person who kidnapped, assaulted, and attempted to kill Nancy was unusually dangerous. It's unknown if she was specifically targeted or a victim of opportunity. But kidnapping her in a busy parking lot in the middle of the day was a crazy risk. She could have honked the horn, jumped out of the car, or crashed it in the parking lot. According to Nancy, the kidnapper was extremely certain and commanding in his directions, so he clearly had a planned attack site. Given the U-turn and culvert locations, we believe that he may have been taking her to the property at 5575 Cabot-Stolman Road. It's 239 acres, privately owned in the same family since 1955, and largely unchanged in all those years. It's the only place that makes sense that the attacker felt that they had missed their turn, and he wanted her to back up a short distance. It's the same ranch on which Nancy was found the next day. The ranch has a large irrigation pond with an isolated area of trees, an obvious area for an attack. It's extremely odd that the suspect felt comfortable assaulting her in the back seat of her car on the side of the road, but didn't try to kill her in the car or shoot her in the trunk and just walk away. Instead, he took another huge risk and walked her a quarter mile at gunpoint. Not only could she have escaped, but one of the witnesses could have identified him. By all accounts, he dragged Nancy by the arm to that specific spot. Looking at the culvert location is chilling because we feel like we've been there before, again and again. Irrigation ditches, canals, and creek beds haunt our dreams at this point. Viscerally, the location feels most like the two spots where the VR loot was found in 1975, which were also large culverts for irrigation ditches running under a two-lane rural road. However, in most ways, it's no different than Evans Ditch in Visalia, or the San Jose Creek in Goleta, or Sycamore Creek in Danville. The list is endless. Muddy, wooded pathways, right by houses and roads, just hidden from view. We have no doubt that the attacker knew of that location and walked Nancy directly to it, but why? The most obvious answer is that it was his preferred site. This certainly fits with Jennifer, Donna, and several of the 1976 EAR attacks, which were outside. After arriving at the ditch, he ordered Nancy to remove her clothing, and he tied her hands behind her back before sexually assaulting her. He then hit her until she was unconscious before stabbing her. Just like Donna, Nancy had no defensive wounds to her hands. Although the property was agricultural, it had only grazing cattle, no crops or daily farming operation. The owners of the property were well-known car dealers, and they also ran a tow yard and body shop with their son. It would have been easy to know that nobody would have been home or working on the property midday on a Wednesday. We quickly figured it out in 2018, so it's likely the offender was simply looking for an outdoor site where he wouldn't be disturbed. It's also possible that he wanted to terrorize the family or throw suspicion on someone associated with the family or the ranch. The family had three sons and a daughter. The oldest son was D'Angelo's age, and the youngest was 18 in 1977. D'Angelo lived in the area and could have crossed paths with them at any time back to the early 1960s. One obvious connection between D'Angelo and the property on Cabot Stallman is Sierra College, which he attended from 1968 to 1970. The college is only about a mile and a half from the spot where Nancy was found. The site is also between Folsom High, where D'Angelo graduated in 1964, and is then home in the Auburn area. In 1970, he was engaged to a woman who lived in Penryn, and he worked in Newcastle. 
There's no question that D'Angelo was familiar with the area. The site of the original kidnapping is even more compelling. It was just 700 yards east of the home of D'Angelo's in-laws and one mile west of the pay safe where he was arrested for shoplifting in 1979, all along Greenback Lane. There were four EAR attacks within a mile and a dozen in the general area. Nancy had graduated from San Juan High School in 1974. Sharon Huddle graduated from the same school in 1971, and they lived a mile apart, each just north of Greenback. Their siblings also attended school together. Nancy's car was left locked, and the keys were taken, just as in the three EAR attacks with stolen cars on September 4th of 76, October 18th of 76, and January 19th of 1977. The attacker gave set commands and used odd words, including suffice. There are also obvious similarities to the cases we've been working in Tulare County. In addition to Jennifer and Donna's cases, we're aware of two kidnapping rapes in Visalia, a 13-year-old girl in 1974 and a 16-year-old in 1975. Both of the Visalia victims were driven to rural areas and assaulted. The 13-year-old claims she was raped in the back seat of D'Angelo's patrol car. As we previously discussed at length, we believe that Beth Snelling's kidnapper was taking her to one of the family cars when her father stopped him. Although it goes against everything law enforcement says about D'Angelo, we believe that kidnappings were always one of his M.O.s. One detail about Nancy's case really struck us. The attacker instructed her to remove articles of clothing while she was driving, and her halter top and underwear were found inside her locked car. We've spent many hours thinking about Donna's pants, shoes, and underwear, especially the fact that they were clean and dry. It has always seemed obvious that she removed them in the vehicle that later drove them to where they were found. We presume the same was true for Jennifer's clothing since it was never located. This is a really odd and unique MO point. Although Nancy was a bit older, she was only 5 feet tall and 100 pounds, about the same as Donna. Also, her long blonde hair, fair complexion, and blue eyes matched both Donna and Jennifer. This also fit with numerous VR stalking victims. We felt like we had seen the physical attack on Nancy before, in Exeter. Jennifer was also found naked with her hands tied behind her back in irrigation water with her blouse nearby. Donna was shoved under a tree like Nancy in a culvert, and left face down in the mud. Donna was also bludgeoned and then stabbed in the neck and had no defensive wounds on her hands. Donna and Jennifer were at the Frank Kern Canal. Nancy was taken to Cavett Stolman Road. Donna was on Neal Ranch, Nancy on Broken Arrow Ranch. There is also a more subtle, complicated M.O. that can be difficult to explain and understand, but it's important. Creating multiple scenes in different jurisdictions gives the offender a huge advantage. It's useful to start by thinking about a VR, EAR, or ONS case. In all of those, police respond to the scene, call in needed resources, gather evidence, conduct interviews, and canvas the immediate neighborhood. Everyone works together, and the systems are in place for routine information sharing so nothing falls between the cracks. There is little confusion. A bad man arrived at the site and departed, and the timing of those events is usually no. Now, imagine Nancy's case. 
She's taken from a busy shopping center midday, and the Sacramento sheriffs respond to a call at her nearby home hours later. Did Nancy make it to the shopping center? Did she go to the bank? Did she get the groceries? Was she seen by anyone? Is her car in the parking lot or anywhere nearby? Is she with her friends? Did she leave the house with money or belongings? Once they determine she's actually missing, they have to gather information about her car and get descriptions of the vehicle and Nancy out to all local agencies, CHP, and the media. Luckily for Nancy, law enforcement works quickly and believes she's been kidnapped. No waiting 24 to 48 hours because she's an adult or treating her like a teen runaway. An alert CHP officer finds Nancy's car and is aware of the missing person report so it doesn't get towed to impound and missed. Now Placer sheriffs are the lead, but they have no idea where to start other than near the car. Since the car was stuck, that searching works, and they find Nancy still alive. Now they have a kidnapping scene, an attack on the car, and the sexual assault and attempted murder on the ranch, with three law enforcement agencies involved. Who's in charge? How is the information shared? Who will interview the victim? Who controls the evidence? Do the officers canvassing for witnesses in the shopping center have statements of witnesses near the car scene? Even with perfect cooperation, the chances of missed information is high. Why did Nancy survive? Because her car got stuck. We're certain that her attacker did not intend to leave the car near Nancy. He would have only needed to move it a few miles to totally confuse the search area, but presumably he intended to take it back near the shopping center where he could walk to his car or home. Although Jennifer Armour's killer moved her to a secluded location and a different jurisdiction, it hardly mattered. She was treated as a runaway, and there were no searchers out looking for her. However, staging Donna's bike worked like a dream. If they hadn't found the bike, where is the first place they would have looked for Donna? the last place she was seen, on Marinette. Would they have searched Neil Ranch that night? Maybe. Would they have gone house to house looking for anyone in that area who had seen her? Probably. But they didn't. They searched in the groves around the bike scene, and then later, the next morning, the invoice book led them to look out near Oscar's house, where, surprise, they found a trail of her clothing. The staged kidnapping bike scene not only prevented law enforcement from finding Donna sooner, but it meant that they never looked for witnesses along Marinette, between Don Lee's house and Neil Ranch. The killer didn't need to worry about witnesses to the real kidnapping because law enforcement was too busy down on List and out on Avenue 264. All of this meant that nobody was sure exactly when Donna was kidnapped, killed, or put under the tree. Her bike could have been placed any time between 4 and 6.30 p.m., when did events happen? Where did they happen? What order were the events? How can law enforcement effectively locate witnesses, confirm alibis, and collect evidence when so many basic questions remain unanswered or muddled? The story we've told about Nancy is only known because she lived to tell it. If she'd died and her clothing and car had been removed from the area and left at separate locations, the killer could have written his own version of events. Would the evidence have been placed to implicate an innocent man? Would the location of the car have been a red herring and sent law enforcement running around a huge apartment complex or checking that neighborhood sex offenders? 
would the times, locations, and order of events have been uncertain? Would law enforcement have spent endless, useless hours on people known to Nancy? Would they have wondered if she voluntarily went with a friend or gave someone a ride? Instead, they knew exactly when each event had occurred and had a detailed description of the stranger. Eliminating all of the other possibilities gave the case the best chance of being solved, and it is still solvable today. The critical thing to remember is that it didn't really matter exactly what worked and what did not. The goal was to create false clues, framing, chaos, and confusion in the investigation. This is where D'Angelo's police training and experience really helped him. We always believed that the offender was either in law enforcement, had a close family member in law enforcement, or was obsessed with detectives, mysteries, and investigative techniques. All of the cases were unnecessarily complicated and elaborate, from the VRs to Snelling to Exeter to the EAR and ONS. There were two ways to interpret that. We saw it as taking pleasure from outsmarting law enforcement by controlling their investigation and watching them miss vital clues and chase false leads and help him elude capture. Others, including some case investigators, saw it as evidence of obsessive rituals, things the offender had to do to fulfill a psychological need. Did he bring Coors cans to the crime scene because it was his favorite beverage and he wanted to enjoy it during the attacks? Or did he simply want the police to focus their investigation on people who bought and drank Coors? Maybe release that false clue to the press. The beauty of it was that it didn't matter. D'Angelo couldn't lose either way. Worst case, some smart detective ignored the Coors as an obvious red herring. Best case, they spent endless hours chasing down Coors drinkers and released it to the public as part of the offender profile. Possible bonus option, it created a fight among the investigators and created divisions and rifts that prevented them from working together effectively. We could do an entire episode on law enforcement infighting on these cases. We've already covered the dispute over whether or not Jennifer Armour had been kidnapped and murdered or died in a tragic partying accident, and Sacramento Sheriff's refusal to consider the VREAR connection. The point of all of this isn't that we can prove D'Angelo attempted to kill Nancy. We can't get a clear answer from law enforcement about whether there was a rape kit compared to the EAR at the time, or if he's been eliminated. However, we do feel that this offender should be identified and prosecuted if possible. Also, there were 14 girls kidnapped from Sacramento and murdered in 1977, and the clues in Nancy's kidnapping could be important to solving those other cases.